This spring, student protesters at the University of Cambridge successfully canceled an event on campus, a screening of a documentary on fertility. Students accused the film of being misogynistic, despite the fact that as student event organizer Charlie Bentley Astor put it in the Critic magazine, this was a film made primarily by women, with women, for women. And as you'll hear on today's episode, a film that featured a remarkable degree of empathy from the sole male on the project. Stephen J. Shaw is a data scientist and filmmaker based in Tokyo. He is the writer, director, and producer of Birth Gap, Childless World, the first part of which is available on YouTube now. Stephen J. Shaw is my guest today on Lean Out. Stephen, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you, Tara. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I want to start today with how you first came on my radar. I I read an article a month ago in The Critic about a cancellation campaign around a screening of your film at Cambridge. Before we dive into the conversation about your documentary, can you just tell us briefly what happened at Cambridge University? Yes, I was invited to give a present a screening of the documentary and QA to what would have been 160 Cambridge students. Uh, They were invited by another student who simply wanted to put on an event. Um, And uh, remarkably, just as I was boarding my flight, I live in Tokyo. As I was boarding my flight to London uh, a couple of days before the event, I got a phone call to say that the college in question had decided that because of threats of disruption, noise disruption from some students who seemed to be perturbed, uh, about the theme of the documentary that it had been cancelled. Um, I'm happy to say a couple of weeks later, we did have another event, but we had to keep that very secret and private. For some reason, it seems that some Cambridge students don't want this conversation talked about. It's it's just so bizarre. I know that the film was called Misogynistic. I watched it. I saw no evidence of that at all. In fact, as we'll get to later in the conversation, and as you know, I am a childless woman. I This film spoke to me and my feelings about that in a way that no other project ever has. Why do you think the students at Cambridge were so upset about your film? I can only take one or two comments because, to be honest with you, I know the students hadn't watched the documentary. There's only a certain part of it uh, online on YouTube at the moment. I know you've had the opportunity, I think, to watch more of it, but it's not publicly available just yet. They also didn't contact me. They never queried me, nor did the student newspaper who also wrote a piece condemning the movie. So these are people who never saw the documentary. The one comment that stood out to me was a young medical student saying that she felt students were able to make their own decisions on whether to have a child or not and didn't need a documentary to help make that choice. Um, I think, as you know, I mean, the documentary is simply listening to people's opinions, voices, and sharing some things that can go wrong in life, even if you do decide that you do want a child. So it's it's very confusing for me, frankly, that students wouldn't want to to kind of expose themselves to the voices of the world that the documentary shares. Mm, indeed. So I want to sort of dive into your your story here because it's such a fascinating one. So you're a data scientist, and and how did you find yourself traveling around the world to some 24 countries researching fertility? 
that was the most unexpected thing that's ever happened in my life. Um, I never planned to to make a film. I thought I might write a book one day. Um, what happened was I saw data on falling birth rates in Europe that I frankly not known about seven years ago. I saw numbers that were shocking that, for example, today in Italy, there are less than half the number of newborns compared to people aged 50 years old. And when you factor that into how our economies are going to change and how our societies are going to have to cope with shrinking and aging, uh, I got worried that no one was talking about this topic. Um, at first, I thought, OK, I believe I can probably write a book about this. I might be able to create some interesting graphics because that's typically what I do. And um, my younger son told me that uh, that's not going to work because young people don't read books anymore. They just watch documentaries. And as luck would have it, I met a uh, Elise Cosgrove, um, a wonderful videographer who was looking for a project. And together we, we we hit the road for what I thought would be five or six countries and 24 countries. And four years later, we we eventually finished. It's it's so interesting because the the narrative that we have often heard in the media, the narrative I grew up with, was on global overpopulation. But your documentary makes a data driven argument: the opposite is happening; that we are seeing a global population collapse. In broad strokes, can you paint a picture for us about what exactly is happening in industrialized nations around the world? Yes, sure. One of the complicated things about populations is it takes some time, generations, for trends to kind of show themselves. What's been happening, in effect, that as societies have been aging, people living longer through healthier lives, we've been increasing our longevity. And we haven't really noticed that's masked the reality that our birth rates have been plummeting. So whilst we look at countries that look like they've got stable populations, even growing populations, if you actually look at birth rates, um, you find that the story of what the future holds to be very different to the one I think most of us think it is. So, for example, if you were to have a hugely reduced birth rate, you would barely notice for a generation. You'd see some closing schools, but it wouldn't affect the economy at all. In fact, eventually employment levels would rise as more people get pulled into the workforce. So things feel good for a generation or two, and the population looks like it's stable or even growing. Two generations in, you realize you've got a problem because there's so few people now to have more children in the future. You've got locked in low birth rates, and you realize you're in a downward spiral that, frankly, no society has been known to come at to come out of it's um it's it's something that we can't point to any example and say aha here's a solution we just don't know what that is mm. and what exactly is the birth gap can you explain that for us yes so i created the term birth gap to mean the gap between the number of old people that we need to support in society and the shrinking number of younger people that a society would be expected to, to generate the taxes and the income to support those older people. It's the gap that's the problem. It's not necessarily a case of whether a large or small population is a good or bad thing. It may well be that in the future we have a smaller, stable population. But in the interim, we're going to have decades, generations of this birth gap with, frankly, too many older people to support. Mm. And 70% of people now live in a country below the population tipping point, below replacement levels for the population. What are some of the consequences? What happens to a society when the birth rate is below replacement? 
Well, initially, you don't notice uh, very much at, at all. But as time goes on, the effect starts to become more and more apparent. And I call it the birth gap trap, because at the point where you realize you have a problem, really, you're at a point where it's, it's too late to go back to where you were before. Um, so, for example, I live in Japan right now. So even if the birth rate in Japan, which has been low for 50 years, were to go back to replacement level, it would still see Japan, uh, Japan's population would still shrink by around half. There's no way to avoid it's already baked into the system because there's simply so few young people here now. Now, the consequences of this are both social and economic. My greatest concern is for the social consequences, although I worry deeply about both. Social consequences, if you can imagine, uh, I lived in uh, Detroit for many years in Michigan, and uh, mm. it's a city that you know, it's famous for having gone bankrupt uh, and famous for the fact that people uh, left the city in the 70s, 80s and 90s. A city built for two million people ended up with less than half that living there. What happened? Well, the, the city couldn't afford the taxes to pay for the streets to be repaired, the lights to be turned on, for vermin to be taken care of. But if you can imagine a, a street in Detroit, and this is a template of what we're going to see around the world of a street where half the houses are empty and decaying. And then the value of the other houses goes down. And then year by year by year, there's this gloomy feeling of everybody's leaving. We will have to endure decades like this in villages, towns, and cities across the world that will be ever contracting. And in the context of that, you know, what does this mean for the, the individual? I really worry about mental health. I really worry about loneliness. Mm. As we lose family structure, I think we're going to be taken into a world where mental health is is a huge, well, it already is, I know, in Japan and, and certain countries in Europe, um, from the, the the consequences of that. And that's not even talking about the economic side, where we were going to have too few uh, workers to pay for the pensions, social care, health care of older people. Mm. And I do want to, to sort of drill down on unplanned childlessness, since you, you show in the documentary that the fertility crisis is not a matter of people having smaller families, but an explosion in the number of people who are childless. I don't know that people are fully aware of this. I mean, what proportion of the female population in the U.S. is now childless? Well, in 2021, that number rose to over 35 percent. It's the highest that it's ever been. Um, so in the US, if you go back to the early 2000s, that number was around 15%, which is not untypical for uh, more developed nations until we get to this trigger. And the trigger for the US coincided with the mortgage crisis, the Lehman crisis of 07, 08. From that moment in time, childlessness has risen year by year, almost without uh, with almost unstoppably going upwards until it has now reached 30. Uh, today, I was calculating the latest numbers at 38%. And, th and th this is just shocking, uh, but it's not unparalleled. It's exactly what we've seen in Italy. It's exactly what we've seen in Japan. Uh, what we see in South Korea is even worse with childlessness there reaching 45%. And, and you're right, the point about the size of families is that it wavers slightly, but mostly for the last 30 to 40 years across all industrialized nations, it's remained the same. An example I'd like to give is that 50 years ago in Japan, 6% of mothers were having four or more children. 
And today that number is exactly the same. There's been no change at all. So it's really about whether women become mothers. Uh, having the first child appears to be the most important thing. Um, but yes, this entire phenomenon is driven by childlessness, and I believe unplanned childlessness. Mm. And what do you know about the Canadian context? I mean, Canada's birth rate is at 1.4 right now, well, well below replacement. We are making up for that through mass immigration. But do, what do you know about when this trend took hold in Canada? Um, Canada is an interesting position. It's it's actually worse than the U.S. in terms of fertility rate, in terms of childlessness. The childlessness rate has actually been quite high in Canada, longer than the U.S. It was 25 to 30 percent even three, four decades ago, uh, which is quite surprising. So Canada almost mirrors some countries in Europe more than the U.S., but once again, we see the exact same trend from the 07-08 mortgage crisis we saw that number rise and rise, and Canada is is back up to upper thirty percent in terms of the the percentage of childlessness. So we see the same thing there, but Canada is 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 almost a hybrid between the the strong trends we've seen in Japan and Europe and the U.S. Uh, I, I worry about Canada in this context. I really do. I worry because when you look at unplanned childlessness, and you know my research, we show that the triggers that that suddenly come in force. So, for example, let me just explain. If you look at uh, Japan and Italy in the early 70s, but not just those examples, but these are very clear and simple ones to take. Childlessness in Japan and Italy was around 3 4 5% in the early 70s. After the oil crisis of 73, by 74, that number had gone up to 15%, then 20%, and eventually 30%. It's an overnight change. So this does not feel like people making decisions to not have children. Uh, people do decide not to have children. I, I, I'll be their biggest supporter. I want to say that. But what I see is that people reacting to financial crises, deferring having children, and ending up being childless. Absolutely. And the way that I first started thinking about this fertility crisis, like I have been in the media over 20 years, I, I had heard next to nothing about this. And I went to um, a talk at Cardis, a, a Canadian think tank, and they presented on this issue, they had done some research. And the research showed that this is in Canada is not a problem of women not wanting children. There's, this is a misconception that actually uh, the research they commissioned found that nearly half of Canadian women at the end of their reproductive years had less children than they wanted. So how is it that this sort of severe economic shocks that are happening all over the world, how does that translate into women not having children when they want to have children? Yes, it's very interesting. And just to be clear, the financial shocks themselves aren't the direct cause. They're the trigger. What seems to happen is around the time of shocks, people through, I think, anxiety, natural anxiety, defer having children, men and women, um, expecting, I think, that they can wait two or three years. And it turns out that with fertility windows closing, often with people not having a partner at the right time, or going through divorce or breakups uh, at the wrong time, that we end up with a, a world where it becomes a social norm just to have children a little bit later. And, and we actually see if we take, for example, the UK, uh, for example, but it, we see this in many places. In the 1960s in the UK, the most common time to have a child was early 20s. By the 90s, the most common time was the late 20s. 
And then for women, this is. And these days, the most common time to have a child is the early 30s. But this is where we hit the fertility window. This is where things become less certain for, for multiple factors. And I, I think what's happened in the world, we've just naturally crept into societies that uh, have, for whatever reason, I don't think it's been a, a master plan at all, but I think it's just been a case that we've been pulled in societies where having a child a little bit later just feels the right thing to do. Mm. And unfortunately, I don't think we're well educated in terms of the risks that that involves. Yeah, I mean, in the documentary, you interview uh, Kim Kardashian's doctor, for instance, who gives a rundown uh, on fertility. And it is a pretty sobering picture. And in the documentary, you say that if you haven't had a child by 30, you have a 50% chance of having one. Nobody tells this to young women that I'm aware of. Why, why not? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. I mean, it's, some of the statistics are, are not difficult to find but we we completely uh, skip this topic. Uh, to, it, it's quite incredible. I, I you know would encourage anybody. I, I put a kind of a short video on the on, on YouTube of Dr. Wine Kim Kardashian's doctor. It's a six minute video. I'd encourage anybody to watch it simply just to understand. He uses these uh, starbursts to explain how quickly egg quality deteriorates, as well as the quantity of eggs. So it's not a difficult concept, but you're right. I mean, the, the young people I'm showing this to have often been in shock. Um, I, I'll give an example of one young Cambridge, Cambridge student who explained that she had become, after watching a documentary, haunted by the future that she might not have. Mm. And, you know, at that point, until that point, she had thought she had at least 10 more years before she would even have to start to think about getting married or having a child 10 more years to plan a career and she has completely changed her priorities based on the information that, that the documentary contained and uh, that's one thing we, we absolutely need to do this needs to be taught in high schools uh, and colleges uh it's simple stuff but it's it's perhaps one of the most important things that i think any young person could learn mm -hmm. There's also the issue in terms of contemporary dating culture. I mean, there is this issue of um, hypergamy, that, that women want men who are more successful than them. And uh, Nick Eberstadt, you interviewed him uh, for the documentary. He's also been on this podcast. And, you know, he points out men are falling behind in education and schooling. And, and how much of a role is that hypergamy issue playing here? Oh, well, it's not helping at all. Um you know, we have many things to, I think, adjust to hopefully address this problem one day. And yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a supporter of women's education. I'll, you know, I've got a daughter as well as two sons, and I treat them equally, and I want them to be educated equally and have equal success, no question. But it is a reality, uh, and it seems to be evolutionary that women do prefer people who are at least as successful as they are. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But when you look at the fact that in U.S. colleges, almost two thirds of people are are, are women today, um, men are just exiting uh, you know colleges en masse, and, and I mean that not just in terms of the intake, but also the dropout rates for young men are much higher. Well, if this sounds like a you know a first world problem, to call it that. Well, you know, you just go to Thailand. In Thailand, it's the same. In Thailand, 55% of women go to college compared to 35% of men. 
Uh, so we have this inbuilt problem. And I think part of the, the motivation for men to go to college needs to be considered here. I, I, so I, I'm putting the onus on men to, in a sense, get it together. But I think men are checking out in terms of what life seems to have to offer for them. It's it's not something I've got an answer for, though, but I, I, I absolutely agree and worry about my own kids and their generation's future uh, for, yeah. for that exact reason. And we, we've been talking about women until now, and and in a moment we'll we'll talk about the kind of pain that women feel over this. But this isn't a really painful issue for a lot of men too. What did what did you learn during the course of your research about about how this is affecting men? Well, one of the interesting things when I talked to people making the documentary, I, I went to twenty four countries. I met two hundred and thirty people, many of them in, in their own homes. Um, what I found was that when I talked to women, and by the way, my, my entire crew were all female. Uh, I think it was women were attracted to this project, but I, I think it enabled a comfort zone that other than me, the rooms that, you know, in terms of videographers, everybody involved were, 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 were all women. And, and women opened up about this. And of course, it wasn't, you know, apparent from the start. We talked about their lives and we talked about aspirations and what they had wanted to do when they were younger and whether they'd planned to have a family and if, if they were childless. Um, very often, you know, emotions would come out, deep stories would come out, and those are shared and, you know, part of the documentary, I think, as you've seen. Men didn't open up. In fact, to be honest with you, it was quite difficult to even have men agree to, to to want to talk in much detail. What did happen was after making uh, you know one of the early drafts of, of the documentary, I was put in touch with a, a men's support group. And finally, I found a group of men who uh, were prepared to talk. And that's shown in the documentary. And to be honest with you, I think that scene is perhaps the most emotional of all scenes when you see men actually um, open up about what they've been hiding about you know I think one gentleman says you know what never was and what will never be mm. in terms of being childless it really is quite chilling so men are affected at least as much as women even if they don't communicate quite as much about it it is interesting. I mean, the the journalist uh, Anna Louise Sussman uh, was on this podcast recently talking about her reporting in South Korea, which has the lowest birth rate in the world. And she did talk about how hard it was as well to get men to talk about this. Um, there's also something else that I wanted to ask you about that seems sort of like an elephant in the room here. And Anna Louise Sussman touched on this in her piece for The Atlantic, that there's there there is a piece of perhaps feminism playing a role here. And there's in the Atlantic story, she looks at this kind of feminism in South Korea, this sort of drink male tears, exaggerated internet feminism that does seem to be separating the sexes. And if we look at this population collapse dating back to the 1970s, second wave feminism, women's entrance on mass into the workforce, I mean, there there is a movement now of of feminists, some of whom have been on this podcast, saying we really need to rethink the kind of not feminism and not working, but we need to rethink the kind of feminism that we're putting out there to young women. What are your thoughts on on that piece? Well, I do have thoughts. First of all, uh, in, you know, in recent weeks, I've been called a feminist and an anti-feminist 
<laughs> in, in the same week feminist <laughs> because i want to support women's education and uh you know rights to work and all of that but uh, the cambridge students seem to to disagree with that um i you know, here here here's my view i think there has been a very blinkered view of the world where we have been telling women that you can have the education you want and that you can have the career that you want and then we stop there and we publish indexes like the global gender gap index which measure this and they measure things like the number of women in the boardroom and salaries and the number of women in government and women's health all, all great things but then they stop there they don't go on to then say oh by the way if you want to have children you need to figure that out for yourself somewhere along that path and you know what i have been frankly saddened by i think most in the time i've been uh, talking about my documentary is background conversations that have been going on between some women who are childless by choice who have been attacking women who are childless not by choice for their support of the documentary, saying, get over it. You can get out of bed anytime you want. What are you complaining about? You can have the career that you want. So I think the world of um, some form of feminism, I don't want to use labels that I'm not, you know, I, I, labels are, are dangerous and the difference between second and third wave feminism, I, I, I couldn't clarify. So I want to stay away from the labels, but I can see that there are some people who have been promoting a culture that women can have everything and children don't matter are being threatened by the documentary and this story. And rightly so. I mean, frankly, their views that, you know, women should uh, ignore their urges, desires, their children are, are, are just, uh, you know, either misguided or they're urges and desires that they personally don't have that doesn't mean that they should enforce those on others mm. yeah that makes a, lo a lot of sense to me um i certainly you know from our correspondence this is a very personal topic for me i, I made a radio documentary about this when i was 39 and um for me i mean there's a lot of factors here the feminism piece is definitely a piece um but the timeline, I think, that was given to my generation of women just doesn't make sense. So I was in grad school until 26. I graduated with $60,000 in student loans that took me um, more than a decade to repay with interest. My industry journalism became very precarious, and the cities that I lived in had housing crises. And, you know, when I think that statistic you gave at 30 was just so eye-opening for me when I was watching the documentary because at 30, I was totally preoccupied with just trying to build a life, a career, make a living, pay my rent, try to get a little bit ahead. I really didn't come up for air until 37. And um, it never felt like a choice or a decision. Or, But I guess what I want to ask you about is this sort of empathy gap around this conversation. Mm. I mean and the feminism piece is a certain piece to it but but so is the progressive left that is reflected in your film that that actually maybe this population collapses a good thing because there's less people on the planet but what those both of those views overlook is just the amount of pain um in a person's life when 
when you take away the idea of family in general and you take away all those milestones and you take away all that social contact and you you take away the meaning and purpose and um and I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. I have a great life. I have a great partner. We have 10 nieces and nephews between us. I mean, but can you speak a little bit to what you heard about that piece? Like how do we communicate to people what it is that's missing when you wanted family and you don't have it? This is such an important topic. And I think um, if anything, I hope the documentary itself can help increase awareness because if you're particularly a younger person watching it, you can see the life stories. And by the way, there's five women interviewed in the documentary who are childless, happily, by choice, who have no regrets and are living the life that they always wanted to live. I think there are a small minority of people uh, around 5% who just don't have that urge. And that that's great. Uh, I don't think anyone should in any way make those people feel guilty. Mm. But equally, I think the, the the empathy for those people without children is just a huge blind spot in society that we have not been considering. I think the assumption is when we meet or hear about childless people, it was probably by choice. Um, and it turns out that's vastly wrong for every four people who are childless, uh, you know, let me get my numbers right. Uh, I want to be clear, this is in Europe and Japan, countries that have been going through this for decades, not quite yet in the US or quite yet in Canada. You know, But there are four people who um, had planned to have children and didn't for every one that planned to be childless. So it's 80% of people without children had, had hoped to have family. Now, when you meet those people in the film uh, and you hear their stories, it's heartbreaking and to talk about the progressive left um, or to talk about, I don't like to get political, but I, I guess it's mostly coming from, from the left. Um, when you hear stories that there are too many people on the planet or that there should we should be having fewer children, and then you say, well, who should be having fewer children? What about the person who only wanted one child? Should they have fewer? What about two children? And then, wait a minute, why should anyone be telling anyone else how many children to have. It's probably the most personal decision any person can make. And how can we tell someone or assume that they're not going to necessarily teach and bring up their children to be respectful citizens, to treat the planet fairly? No, the, these voices are wrong. And I think the, the biggest indicator of that is that these voices haven't changed for 60 or more years. They're telling the same story. They're not saying, oh, Japan, yes, you've done enough now. You brought the birth rate down enough or Italy. That's fine. You can balance things now. They don't ever update their storybook. Um, they're just antinatalist. I, I've debated them uh, somewhat in public, and it, it's quite uh, remarkable how uh, at the lack of empathy they have for, for individuals. Um, so I hope the documentary will hopefully widen this debate and show people, you know, living a life without children when you plan them can be a tough thing. Mm. And, and in terms of where we go from here, I mean, you've said this is historically unprecedented. No country has yet 
found a way out. So this is a big challenge for the world going forward. Um, there are some people that point to Hungary as a, a particular kind of glimmer of hope. What has that country been doing? And is it actually making a meaningful difference to this issue? Well, we don't know if it's meaningful yet. We don't have enough data. What what Hungary has been doing is on a general level, encouraging the concept of family. So apparently when you arrive at the airport, I, I haven't been there for many years, but in Budapest, there's posters promoting having children. There's a culture, it seems, that government's promoting that families are a good thing. That's been tried in other places and hasn't worked very well. In Italy, they tried having a fertility day and it actually completely backfired with the health minister almost having to resign. So I'm not sure... It's linked to that. They've also been doing some quite extreme things in terms of offering people who have, for example, four children, women who have four children, uh, effectively 0% income tax rates for life. But we haven't yet at least seen any increase in the number of uh, mothers having four children there. That might happen. The one thing that is interesting about Hungary is over the past 10 years or so, the childless rate has been falling from it was around 43% down to 28%. It's a third reduction in the number of people remaining childless. So that is something that could well be positive. I, I don't want to dismiss it, but we've seen trends like this in the past in other countries, and it turns out it is a little bit of a blip. So I'm going to have to hold fire a little bit before I can say that definitively Hungary has in some way helped solve its problem. Mm. And Stephen, just to close, I mean, you have lived and breathed this issue for years. You moved to Japan to be closer, to be on the ground. Um, when you sort of lie in bed awake at night thinking about this, where what are your thoughts? Like, where do we where do we all go from here? Yeah, and I do lie awake thinking about this far too often. Uh, this is about this is a problem that young people need to solve. Um, by definition, it's young people making decisions about what they want for their future. Um, I'm encouraged, frankly, since I've been screening the documentary, that the reaction from young people has been so powerful that there's been shock, a horror, horror uh, from many who didn't know that the you know the chance of becoming a mother beyond thirty is fifty fifty. Uh, men too, who are hoping to find women to become mothers, are equally shocked. The one advantage that younger people do have is because the number of younger people is shrinking in all of these countries, they're going to have more power in terms of employment, in terms of their work-life balance. And because we're living longer, there's more opportunity, I think, to spread our career and education over extended periods of time and fit in having a family somewhere along that path. So I'm hoping younger people can, for themselves, help drive the chains that I think many of them want. So I'm, I'm left with actually more hope than I think I thought I would have at this point, having finished the documentary. And that hope comes from looking in the eyes of younger people. Mm. Well, Stephen, I really appreciate your work. And uh, I found this quite this project as a whole, very moving. And I, I appreciate the level of empathy and sensitivity and humanity that you brought to it. And, and just thank you. And thank you for the conversation. Thank you for the time, Tara. Enjoy the conversation. Lean out. 
is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Thank you.